Happy Sunday and thank you for joining me today. The 1980 presidential election uh, was a was between the incumbent Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, and Republican presidential nominee, Ronald Reagan. The win that year was astonishing. So credible that looking back on it now, it's just almost unbelievable. I mean, Ronald Reagan won 489 electoral votes and Jimmy Carter had only 149. Ronald Reagan more than 43 million popular votes, Jimmy Carter less than 36 million. So it was an absolute electoral blowout. It was an astonishment. It was a shock. And that is what made Jimmy Carter a one-term president. In the 1984 presidential election, it was between incumbent Republican President Ronald Reagan and Democratic presidential nominee Walter Mondale. This election was quite tense. Reagan was older than Mondale, and he, when he was asked about his, his age at one of the presidential debates, um, he, he was asked about this. He created this very memorable and almost laughable moment. Uh, take a listen to this. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all, Mr. Truitt and I, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> So that was Ronald Reagan in the 1984 presidential presidential primaries at one of the presidential debates. Uh, Ronald Reagan went on to win that election and Mondale got shellacked. Uh, President Reagan received 525 electoral votes and Walter Mondale only received 13. President Reagan, 54 million popular votes and Walter Mondale won less than 38 million. One of the one of the greatest honors that a president is given under the Constitution is the right to nominate a Supreme Court justice. And that opportunity came in 1987. Now, it is also worth mentioning here that 1987 was an election year and Reagan's vice president was running for president. Reagan's vice president was George H.W. Bush. He is running for president. Being a public servant, you know, being a public servant is a great thing. It's a, it's a good thing to, to serve the public from being a mayor to, to governor to senator and or attorney general is a great thing. But you also risk exposure of your private life. And so here's what happened. In 1987, Supreme Court Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr. decided to retire from the court. And so President Reagan nominated a new justice. He nominated Judge Robert Bork. Well, it's, let me announce in advance that I am making a brief announcement here, and then the judge and I are going to depart. And I won't say to you no questions. I know better than that. Having been in here before, there will be no answers. Uh, but it's with great pleasure and deep respect for his extraordinary abilities that I today announce my intention to nominate United States Court of Appeals Judge Robert H. Bork to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Judge Bork is recognized as a premier constitutional authority. His outstanding intellect and unrivaled scholarly credentials are reflected in his thoughtful examination of the broad, fundamental legal issues of our times. When confirmed by the Senate as an appellate judge in 1982, the American Bar Association gave him its highest rating, exceptionally well qualified. 
On the bunch, bench, he has been well-prepared, even-handed, and open-minded. In taking this action today, I'm mindful of the importance of this nomination. The Supreme Court of the United States is the custodian of our Constitution. Justices of the Supreme Court must not only be jurists of the highest competence, they must be attentive to the specific rights guaranteed in our Constitution and the proper role of the courts in our democratic system. Judge Bork widely regarded as the most prominent and intellectually powerful advocate of judicial restraint shares my view that judges' personal preferences and values should not be part of their constitutional interpretations. The guiding principle of judicial restraint recognizes that under the Constitution, it is the exclusive province of the legislatures to enact laws and the role of the courts to interpret them. We're fortunate to be able to draw upon such an impressive legal mind, an experienced judge, and a man who already has devoted so much of his life to public service. He'll bring credit to the court and his colleagues, as well as to his country and the Constitution. Justice Lewis Powell, in announcing his retirement, said the court should not be hampered by operating at less than full strength. And with this in mind, I urge the Senate to expedite its consideration of Judge Bork so the court will have nine justices when its October term begins. And I have every expectation that it will do so. So you you have this guy here, right? Right, Judge President Reagan has just nominated Judge Bork. And Judge Bork seems like a great nominee, right? I mean, he was a former federal appeals court judge. He was a professor at law. He, excuse me. He was a pref, he was a law professor at Yale University. He also worked at the Justice Department under the Nixon administration during the infamous Saturday Night Ma- Massacre. We also learned that he actually he actually helped carry out that Saturday Night Massacre under the Nixon administration after the Attorney General R- Elliot Richardson and also the Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox resigned on October 20th, 1973. But then but then we we begin to we begin to see some of these more some of the more things about him and his personal views come to light. We found out that he opposed the Supreme Court's one man one vote decision on legislative appointment. He also wrote an article opposing the 1964 civil rights law that required hotels, restaurants and other businesses to serve people of all races. Furthermore, he opposed a 1965 Supreme Court ruling that struck down a state law banning contraceptives contraceptives for married couples. Bork said, quote, there is no right to privacy in the Constitution, end quote. And the, the last thing that we learned from Judge Robert Bork, President Reagan's nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court, the last thing that we learned about Judge Robert Bork was that he opposed the Supreme Court's decision on gender equality. Before the confirmation hearings even began, anti-Robert Bork ads began running on TV. Here's one of them. There's a special feeling of awe people get when they visit the Supreme Court of the United States, the ultimate guardian of our rights as Americans. That's why we set the highest standards for our highest court justices, and that's why we're so concerned. This is Gregory Peck. Robert Bork wants to be a Supreme Court justice, but the record shows that he has a strange idea of what justice is. He defended poll taxes and literacy tests, which kept many Americans from voting. He opposed the civil rights law that ended whites-only signs at lunch counters. He doesn't believe the Constitution protects your right to privacy. And he thinks that freedom of speech does not apply to literature and art and music. 
Robert Bork could have the last word on your rights as citizens. But the Senate has the last word on him. Please urge your senators to vote against the Bork nomination. Because if Robert Bork wins a seat on the Supreme Court, it will be for life. His life and yours. It's unclear if those ads actually ran during during the Robert Bork confirmation hearings or before, uh, but those ads did run on TV, essentially urging people to contact their senators and say, hey, no, vote against this guy. But the confirmation hearings were intense and they were very controversial. Here's reporting at the time from PBS News. The Robert Bork nomination ended today. The Senate voted by an overwhelming 58 to 42 margin to reject the controversial appointment. Judy Woodruff ends our special coverage of the Bork story. Judy? The fact that the outcome of the vote was expected all along didn't make the final hours of the Bork debate any less contentious. Right down to the wire, Bork supporters continued to charge that their man had been grossly maligned by the opposition, while critics insisted that a fair airing of Bork's views had taken place. It didn't go well. He got Borked, which in a way is not comical as some of you might think. But borked is actually a word. The word borked means to have one's nomination to high office be subject to zealous political attack. And because those hearings were so controversial and Robert Bork was rejected by the Senate by a major vote, I mean literally 58 to 42, because Robert Bork was rejected by such a large, large margin and major vote, President Reagan tried again, this time with Judge Douglas Ginsburg. I am announcing today that in accordance with my duty under the Constitution, I intend to nominate and ask the Senate to confirm Judge Douglas Ginsburg of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit for the position of Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> judge Ginsburg is a highly regarded member of the legal profession. His career as a federal judge, as Assistant Attorney General of the United States, as a senior official at the Office of Management and Budget, as a distinguished professor at Harvard Law School, and as a former law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, makes him eminently qualified to sit on our highest court. Just as importantly, Judge Ginsburg is highly respected by his peers across the political spectrum. When I nominated him to the U.S. Court of Appeals last year, he was unanimously confirmed by the Senate and won lavish praise not just from conservatives but from liberals as well. Judge Ginsburg is, as I am, as every justice I've nominated has been, a believer in judicial restraint. That is, that the proper role of the courts is to interpret the law, not make it. In our democracy, our elected representatives make laws and unelected judges interpret the laws. And that's the foundation of our system of government. Above all, Judges must be guided by our most fundamental law, the Constitution. Every judge that I appoint must understand that he or she serves under the Constitution, not above it. And Judge Ginsburg is such a judge. Throughout his professional career, Judge Ginsburg has shown that he also believes, as I do, that the courts must administer fair and firm justice while remembering not just the right of criminals, but equally important, the rights of the victims of crime and the rights of society. Too often, judges have reinterpreted the Constitution and have made law enforcement a game in which clever lawyers can try to find ways to trip up the police on the rules. This is not what our founding fathers intended when they framed our Constitution 200 years ago. They knew that among the most vital duties of government 
was to ensure domestic tranquility. They drafted a constitution and gave us a system that was true to that duty while protecting the rights of all Americans. Back in 1987, the Los Angeles Times described Judge Douglas Ginsburg as, quote, warm, witty, tolerant, and sympathetic. Some friends call, some friends call him a man remembered for gently sheep herding a friend who had been raped through the painful necessities of medical treatment and for spending weekend after weekend reading to his young daughter when his first marriage failed, end quote. His neighbors at the time perceived him as, quote, soft-spoken and a little shy, not the kind of person who makes enemies at all, end quote. Well, contrary to that, his former colleagues at the Justice Department, uh, where he was the head of the antitrust division, perceived him as, quote, an arrogant, aloft, bill excuse me, bureaucrat and a cold ideologue, so lost in abstract theories and out of touch and with reality that he once suggested that his effort to slash government regulation of business was was pro bono on behalf of the poor and disadvantaged, end quote. In other words, we oppose this guy. Don't put him on the court. Nevertheless, a, a concerning detail from his private life came to light, and it turned out that Judge Douglas Ginsburg smoked marijuana. I mean, what? He did what? I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. Uh, here, here's how the New York Times explains it at the time. Quote, Ginsburg withdraws name as Supreme Court nominee, citing marijuana claimer. End quote. Uh, that article from the New York Times goes on, quote, Under enormous pressure from administration officials and his own conservative supporters on Capitol Hill, Judge Douglas H. Ginsburg today asked President Ronald Reagan to withdraw his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. The judge announced his decision only nine days after he was chosen to fill the seat vacated by the retirement of Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr. He acted... He acted after disclosures about his personal and ethical conduct stirred a, stir, stirred a storm of criticism. The disclosures, which culminated Thursday with, with, with Judge Ginsburg's admission that, yeah, he smoked marijuana several times, embarrassed Mr. Reagan, who had called his confirmation, quote, vitally important to the fight against crime, end quote. Judge Ginsburg's is, uh, so that, that's reporting, that's according to Judge Ginsburg's statement. The Times goes on to say, quote, Judge Ginsburg's withdrawal marks Mr. Reagan's second failure to fill the court vacancy. The first nominee, Judge Robert H. Bork, was defeated in the Senate last month after a bitter debate over his views on civil liberties and other issues. In addition to his admission about marijuana, questions were asked about, judges, about Judge Ginsburg's truthfulness regarding a form he filled out when he was nominated last year to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And also, ethical concerns arose about his actions at the Justice Department of, uh, excuse me, arose about his actions as a Justice Department official in handling a cable television case when he was an investor in a cable company. In public, Mr. Reagan supported his nominee to the end and issued a statement today saying he accepted he accepted the judge's decision, quote, with regret. <laughs> so President Reagan finds out and the whole public finds out that, oh, yes, Judge Ginsburg used to smoke marijuana. Disturbing detail for a Supreme Court justice or anybody to be confirmed in a public lighting or any cabinet position. That's disturbing. So, so after, after those two failed Supreme Court nominations, President Reagan tried one last time. Oh, God, please help me. He tried one last time, and he nominated Judge 
Anthony Kennedy to the U.S. Supreme Court. As a fair but tough judge who respects the law. We're all a bit wiser, is the way President Reagan put it, as he introduced his new choice for the Supreme Court, meaning he'd learned some lessons from the failed Bork and Ginsburg nominations. 51-year-old Anthony Kennedy is seen as a moderate conservative, long on experience on the U.S. Circuit Court in California for 12 years. He's popular with colleagues of all political persuasions. And I've noted he seems to be popular with many senators of varying political persuasions as well. And they're putting Kennedy through the ringer. Sunday, he was quizzed by top administration officials for three hours and answered FBI questions for 10 hours, Monday and Tuesday. Monday evening, he met with the president for a half hour. They were determined to avoid awful surprises, like learning after the fact of Judge Ginsburg's marijuana smoking. Judge Kennedy, did they ask you if you'd ever smoke marijuana? Did they ask me that question and the answer was no, firmly no. In fact, only this morning, the FBI brought its latest findings to the White House, giving Kennedy a clean bill of health on his California lobbying before he became a judge. How can you be confident, how can you be confident of the background check? by Attorney General Edwin Meese's Justice Department when he blew the last one. <laughs> he didn't blow the last one. We were talking in the last time about a man who had been confirmed and who had been investigated four times for positions in government. Only yesterday, Utah's Orrin Hatch voiced conservative complaints about White House handling of the court nominations. But Hatch today said he does not see any conservative opposition to Kennedy. He does appear to be a person who believes in the principle of judicial restraint. And if that's so, that is the one thing that I think most, uh, most thinking conservatives would like to see. Even hardliner Jesse Helms, who threatened to filibuster Kennedy when he was being considered the last time, spoke with the judge by phone today and is expected to back him. And the Democrats, who opposed the last two Reagan choices, this time are saying they'll keep an open mind. I hope that the White House has now come up with a nomination that will not provoke the sort of controversy we found ourselves engaged in over the Bork and Ginsburg nominations. Showing extra caution, the president won't formally send the nomination to the Senate for about two weeks till the FBI completes another full start-from-scratch field investigation of Judge Kennedy. Still, the administration insisted today it wants Senate action before the end of the year. This is John Aubuchon at the White House. So this time, the Reagan White House is more prepared and they were more persistent in their questioning than ever. You could hear you could hear the reporter saying, did you ever smoke marijuana, Judge? We want to we want to confirm this. Also to show expert, ex, excuse me, also to show extra precaution, as you heard the reporter say there, uh, the FBI is going to take a take a closer look into Mr. Kennedy to make sure he doesn't have any skeleton. He doesn't have any skeletons in the closet there. <laughs> But this was this was the chaotic confirmation hearings and nominations of Supreme Court justices under the Reagan administration as he tried to to fill that seat in. They, they asked multiple times if Judge Kennedy smoked marijuana and he assured them that he did not. His answers were true and he was ultimately confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, whew, Ronald Reagan sure had a hard time getting a justice on the court. And so that is the remarkable history of, of, of two failed Supreme Court nominations and what, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? In 2018, Justice Anthony Kennedy retired after President Trump leaned on him a bit, encouraging him that his legacy would be in good hands. That opened up the door for Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who was accused of rape, sexual misconduct, and sexual assault. 
but there there is there is a an, another concerning thing that happened when Brett Kavanaugh was excuse me when Brett Kavanaugh was being put up there to potentially be confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. Brett Kavanaugh, um, he actually indicated that you know the president of the United States should not be investigated. The president should be immune from subpoenas. Subpoenas. The president shouldn't have to uh, respond to those. And he was ultimately confirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And there was much concern on if he could potentially interfere, interfere in that process. Because the Mueller investigation was taking place at the time. If he could potentially be like a, 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 a reliable voice on the court for the president of the United States instead of the Constitution and the American people. So that's what happened back then. You know, last month there, there was not a retirement, but there was a death. The death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Just one hour after she died, Senate Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced that, yes, we will hold hearings and confirm President Trump's nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. When President Trump announced his nominee for the Supreme Court, it was at the White House, outside, with chairs close together and people hugging and talking closely, very, very closely. As of last week, we know that we now know that that particular setting at the White House was potentially a very big super spreader for the coronavirus. And we also have pictures confirming that there were that there was gathering in the White House with Judge Barrett as well. And that's before they went outside. Among those who have tested, uh, who have among those who attended the event and who have tested positive for the coronavirus are our former counselor to the president, Kellyanne, Con Kellyanne Conway, Republican Senator Mike Lee, the president and the first lady, Republican Senator Tom Tillis, as well as the president and no as well as the president of Notre Dame University and former New Jersey governor Chris Christie. Most recently, we have learned that Republican Senator Ron Johnson has also tested positive for the coronavirus earlier this week after being exposed to someone. Despite his positive test results, he said that he is still against masks. Now, despite multiple senators testing positive for the coronavirus, according to Lindsey Graham last night during the Senate debate here in South Carolina, he said that, yes, the confirmation hearings will still take place to confirm Judge Barrett. Lindsey Graham is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the U.S. Senate. But the question remains, how are they going to conduct a hearing with multiple senators testing positive for the coronavirus and also multiple senators refusing to come in person? Because some Republican senators won't wear their mask. But as I said earlier, being a public servant is a great thing. It is an honorable thing. It is a revered thing. It is an admirable thing. But it is also it also comes with risk of exposure of your excuse me of exposure of your private life and criticism and opposition as well. Well, earlier this week and yesterday, this happened. The first thing we received was that. Amy Coney Barrett accepted cash from an anti-LGBTQ hate group that is known for discrimination. According to Now This News, quote, Amy Coney Barrett accepted money from a hate group that supports the recriminalization of homosexuality in the United States. She was pressed on this issue in her 2017 federal judge appointment hearing, end quote. The second thing that we learned was yesterday, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but there's one more thing that I want to raise here as, as I raise, as I talked about this analogy between 2018, Brett Kavanaugh saying that, oh, a sitting president should be immune from investigations and he shouldn't have to respond to a subpoena. I want to talk about that for a second, because if, if president, if, if, if the Supreme Court, excuse me, if 
the Senate does confirm President Trump's nominee for the U.S. Senate, Amy Coney Barrett. And if they put her on the high court, there is a major, major concern here. And that is she could potentially cite with the president on the presidential election. Now, the president keeps saying that, yes, the election will go to the Supreme Court essentially already putting the results of the election into chaos and into confusion and also into people second-guessing themselves. That is concerning. But here's the second thing that happened this week. More than 1,000 alumni from Amy Coney Barrett's undergrad college have now signed a letter of concern. In this letter of concern, according to reporting from The Hill, uh, this letter states that, quote, over 1,000, according to The Hill, quote, over 1,500 alumni from U.S. Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett's alum, alumma matter signed a letter of concern over the conservative lawyer and judge's pending appointment to become the next Supreme Court justice. Barrett graduated in 1994 with honors from Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Actually, but actually in reference to the, to the letter here, according to The Hill, quote, Alumni Rob Morris and Catherine Morgan Breslin wrote a critical letter over Barrett's stances on abortion law, the LGBTQ community, and the Affordable Care Act. According to this letter, they write, quote, We are likewise firmly and passionately opposed to Rhodes Administrators' Rhodes Administrators' attempts to embrace Amy Coney Barrett as an alum as an alumna of our beloved Alma Matter. End quote. Then the letter goes on to say, quote, We oppose this embrace because we believe both her record and the process that has produced her nomination are diametrically opposed to the values of truth, loyalty, and service that we learned at Rhodes. More than 1,000 people have signed this letter. Uh, we are going to continue to have more reporting on Judge Amy Coney Barrett in the days ahead. But remember, this is hypocrisy and diametrically contrary to what Republicans said in 2016. You know, my last point here is, is what happened under President Reagan's administration with those two failed Supreme Court nominations, is that going to happen this time? Is there going to be pressure from senators, excuse me, is there going to be, is there going to be pressure, are, are senators' constituents going to pressure them into voting against this or halting this nomination until at least the election is over? What is going to happen in this election, excuse me, in this, in this confirmation? Is it going to be intense? Are these still going to take place? How are they going to do it? And is it going to look like it did in 1987 when President Reagan tried this? But this is a public concern. We'll continue to keep an eye on the story. Eyes open, heads up, more head. We'll be right back. Joining me now back on the show for the interview is Merrick Rosenberg. He's the CEO of Taking of Taking Flight Learning. He is also an expert on predicting presidential elections based on their personalities. Mr. Rosenberg, thank you again for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeremiah. So at the presidential debate this week, I know this is something that it, this week has just felt so long with the news. Um, the president at this debate this week, what what do you think the role in as us watching the president's presidential debate and the president continuing to to interrupt Democratic nominee Joe Biden? What role do you think that could play on voters as far as this election? Well, what you're really looking at is, is personality. Mm -hmm. I, you, when you look at Donald Trump's personality, he is what I refer to as the eagle. Mm -hmm. Eagles are confident, they're direct, they're assertive. And, and just so you can get a sense of, of the interplay between Biden and, and Trump and how it plays, how it's going to play out in the election. You've got Biden, who's very much more of that dove, very, very empathetic and compassionate, but he's also got a lot of parrot energy too, big charisma, big smile. Neither of them have a lot of owl, logical, analytical style. 
So, mm -hmm. so what we saw on stage was Donald Trump in full on eagle mode. And eagles are confident, but here was his challenge. When you dial up confidence, you get arrogance. When you, eagles want things, they're fast paced. And so when, when an eagle dials up that, hey, let's just do it, let's talk about it. They jump to the end of the conversation. They have a hard time listening. And that's what we watched. He dialed that up way too much. That, mm. that what happens with Trump is that because he dialed up his eagle energy, assertiveness became arrogance, directness became blunt, and he just kept interrupting. Mm -hmm. And when you contrast that against Biden's more empathetic style, kind of folksies, he almost smiled things off. He was like, oh, what is going on? <laughs> and, and so I, I think what will impact voters is you when you overuse a strength and you take a confidence strength or an assertiveness or a directness and you dial those up too much, you can become the bully. And I think that's what we saw. I don't think voters are going to like that. I think voters would respect him if he were were direct and confident and assertive. Dial it up too much, and I think he, I think he's going to push voters away, especially those swing voters. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about personality a lot, especially in your business and what you do. Um, for the president at the debate to continue to interrupt Joe Biden, um, many people view that as naive on the president's part. Also, um, the president just continuing to um, say lots of false things. How do you think voters, um, how do you think the, pre excuse me, how do you think this could affect the president um, as far as like national polls? We've already seen Joe Biden uh, gain 14 points from that debate. Um, how do you think this is going to affect the president? Well, we would hope that people really care about honesty and character and integrity. And the reality is that people just give presidential candidates a pass when it comes to honesty. I mean, mm -hmm. we've we've elected a president when he ran. Nixon's nickname was Tr Tricky Dick. Clinton's uh, <laughs> nickname while he was running was Slick Willie. We didn't <laughs> care. Uh, and and what happens is in our personal relationships, uh, if you had a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife, and you're date you're date or you're just dating someone, and I said to you, look, they're honest. 80% of the time, but 20%, they lie. You would mm -hmm. never date that. <laughs> that. That would be completely unacceptable. But if I said to you, hey, I got a presidential candidate, they're honest 80% of the time, you'd say, we'll take it. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, you know, people have this, this feeling that, that um, presidential candidates and politicians are, are not always completely honest. So it's almost as if they get a pass. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, I think that, that all of the, the, the dishonest statements of, of which uh, have been tracked and documented, and there seem to be over 25,000 uh -huh. I'm not sure if voters really care about that. I think what they care about is the charisma and the energy, you go to a Trump rally and people love that. You described Joe Biden as more as this, this Dove character and more empathetic. Um, Joe Biden at the debate this week, he did look into the camera with some of those, those more personal direct camera moments speaking to the American people. How do you think that will resonate with voters and his personality on the campaign trail? I think that would have been exactly what I would have told him. Here's what you've got to do. And that's what he's got that parrot personality as well, which is very personable and big energy and a big smile, combine that with the empathetic dove and you create connection. This has been his gift. It's exactly what he should have done is look into the camera. You'll notice what Trump was doing. Eagles attack. They attack the question. They attack the opponent. They attack the questioner. They attack the end of every Joe Biden sentence. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and he was looking to his side the entire time. Why? Because he was looking at Joe Biden. 
Mm-hmm. Joe Biden was looking at the American public and people like that. There's a yeah. connection that that dove style that that parrot energy creates. And you watched it. He looked right at the American public and said, hey, look, is this OK? Look what you're looking at. Is this what you want? Yeah. And I think that he created that connection. What do you make of, of voters who walked away from this interview and people just analyzing both candidates' personalities and saying that this was a disaster? Is there a way that either candidate can resolve that and try to convince voters to come to to support their campaigns? Yeah, I, I don't think necessarily either candidate won that debate. <laughs> <laughs> the question is who lost it the least? <laughs> And so I think what happened, though, is that that you're looking at, at Donald Trump in such an overuse mode that he overused his strength. His strength became his weakness, and that hurt him. Mm-hmm. I think Biden, he tried to come across as very empathetic. It's hard. It's hard to, to create that connection when you're being attacked and you can't finish your sentence. I'm not sure the debates helped him so much, but I don't think they hurt him. I think Donald Trump came in with a strategy that he wanted to make Biden look weak. But what I think ultimately happened was he looked far too aggressive. Mm. Uh, Did Biden look strong and confident? Maybe not. But that's not what doves and parrots try to do. They just try to create connection and empathy and show compassion. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it hurt Biden as much as it hurt uh, as it hurt, hurt Trump. Most recently, uh, the president and the first lady, as well as other members in the White House and senior officials, have tested positive for the coronavirus. Um, as far as voters and people across the country knowing that the president has downplayed this pandemic for a long time, how do you think this will resonate with voters as we are now about 30 days into this election? I think it's going to have an impact. I think what, what Donald Trump has tried to do, and this is what eagles do, eagles feel in their own mind that they gain credibility by displaying power. Mm. And here's a time when you're sick, let's face it, you're vulnerable and we all get sick. Mm -hmm. Uh, This could have been a time for him to say, look, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the pain of this horrible disease. I feel for the families. I feel for the people who who we've lost. I feel for the parents and the the children and the the brothers and sisters and our our friends and our coworkers. And I I feel for them and I really get it now. But what he's doing is saying, hey, it's not so bad. I'm actually, you know, I may be back (laughs) at work tomorrow. Uh, And so so I I think he's wasting an opportunity to display dove energy, which is Joe Biden's secret weapon. Attack Mm -hmm. Joe Biden's secret weapon with his with his empathy. Instead, he's just saying, hey, I'm good. I'm strong. Look, I'm going to make a couple minute video, a video that takes a couple (laughs) minutes. I'm going to show you. I'm going to put the suit on. And then, you know, he gets back in bed and has a fever. He can't feel very well. But Mm -hmm. this is what eagles do. They don't necessarily show empathy. They show strength. And I think he's doing exactly what he's doing all the time. This isn't different. Do you think that there is a risk in that? And also, if the president were to finally display, um, if the president were finally to display this sort of dove and empathetic character, do you think that he could potentially win over voters as people seeing the president as more of a calm, generous and empathetic person? I think that this would have been a good strategy six months ago. I, I think we know who the president is, and yeah. I think we know who Biden is. Look, we don't see Biden as an eagle. That's not a criticism. He's not an eagle. We don't see Trump as a dove. That's not a criticism. He's not a dove. And 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 I, I think that that if he was going to show empathy, 
it, it would have been throughout this COVID crisis. I think that it's probably mm -hmm. too late to dial it up now, though, though it clearly is an opportunity uh, for him to connect with those people. Most definitely. Uh, once again, my guest is Merrick Rosenberg. He is the CEO of Take Flight Learning. Also, he is uh, an expert on presidential, uh, excuse me, on predicting presidential elections based on their personality. Mr. Rosenberg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, coming up next, we're going to have a special report on the situation at Fort Bliss, as well as Fort Jackson and Fort Hood, and more importantly about Vanessa Guillen. Stay with us. We have much more ahead tonight. We'll be right back. Hey, Google. More than 100 billion words are translated every day. Lift your hand. Thank you very much for your help. Words about food. Words about friendship, about sport, about belief, about fear. Words that can hurt and sometimes divide. But every day, the most translated words in the world are how are you, thank you, and I love you. Welcome back to the Jeremiah Patterson Show. This is going to be a two-part TJPS special report. Here is the first part. First of all, I'd just like to mention that we do not have any developing reports right now on the soldier that is missing right now in Fort, in Fort, excuse me, at Fort Bliss. We live in hope. We are praying and hoping for the best right now. On last week, on Sunday, on the Jeremiah Patterson Show, I talked about how their family, how his family, how this missing Fort Bliss's soldier's family is offering a reward of $11,000 to whoever, whomever finds, whoever finds their son. <clears throat> well, earlier this week, the military has offered a reward of $25,000 in the persistent effort right now that is valiantly searching to find this missing Fort Hood soldier, excuse me, Fort Bliss soldier. But here is our special report. Earlier this week, um, a, the Army confirmed, Fort Bliss confirmed that the motorcyclist that was killed was their soldier. They are confirming that. According to reporting by KTSM, quote, Fort Bliss confirmed the person killed in a crash on Wednesday in the lower valley was a soldier at the post. The crash happened on Gateway East at Giles after a speeding car allegedly ran a red light and crashed into a motorcyclist. Fort Bliss confirmed the motorcyclist was Specialist Samuel D. Birmingham. Specialist Birmingham was a 21-year-old unit supply specialist assigned to the 1st Battalion, 37th Armored Regiment, 2nd Armored Brigade Combat Team. He was a native of Bourne, California. According to according to one of the lieutenant excuse me according to one of the lieutenant colonels and commanders at Fort Bliss quote Samuel was a treasured member of our team a fast riser within the ranks and destined to be a leader within our army Samuel was a young man full of life with many friends here in the bandit battalion the story is obviously just absolutely devastating as we're learning reports of this. But another story that we are following here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show is the story about Vanessa Guillen. We have been following this story for a very, very long time. Our special report on that is up ahead, and you will want to listen. Stay with us. In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. 
At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. This morning, Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen's family keeps fighting for justice over her brutal murder. And now new details are emerging about how the suspect accused of killing her was able to escape from a military base. Guillen, a 20-year-old Houston native, disappeared from Fort Hood in April. Her body finally found on June 30th. After Guillen's murder, the prime suspect, Specialist Aaron Robinson, was kept under watch on Fort Hood by an unarmed escort while a case against him was being built. Months after the murder, news broke that human remains had been found. Robinson watched news reports on his cell phone. He's watching this on his cell phone. And so he flees. Somehow, Robinson got past his escort. The guard gives chase, but he gets in a vehicle and he leaves Fort Hood. Somehow, Robinson managed to obtain a gun. He pulls the gun out and he ends his life. He dies by suicide. Robinson's escape and death shocking Vanessa's family. The military still searching for a motive for her murder. With so many unanswered questions around the Vanessa Guillen case, we've come here to the Pentagon to sit down with the Secretary of the Army to get some answers. I'm Ryan, nice to meet you. Good to meet you. On the day that Vanessa's remains were found, Specialist Robinson is put under the watch of an unarmed escort. How does the prime suspect in Vanessa's disappearance escape from a military base, somehow get a hold of his, a gun, and then kill himself? I don't have enough information to truly understand the specifics of what happened at that moment. The Guillen family has been robbed of their day in court with their daughter's killer because he's dead now. How do you explain that? We, we have to find answers and we will hold people accountable. Will there ever be justice for Vanessa Guillen? I don't know. According to new reporting as of this week, KSAT.com is reporting that Bexar County Grand Jury has indicted the San Antonio man for alleged social media threat against Fort Hood. As I was talking about earlier on earlier a couple of weeks ago, I talked about this on the show. I discussed this on the show. According to this reporting, um, this guy, he said that he was going to shoot up the base. He was going to potentially be an active shooter at Fort Hood. Um, they have now indicted him. So there's an update on that story. As of this week, uh, they have in, they actually indicted him on Friday. Also, we have new reporting that indicates that senators, according to armytimes.com, senators are promising a, quote, new command climate, end quote, at Fort Hood in just about 90 days. We're actually going to have a TJPS special report on Fort Hood coming up. I will tell you that is going to be interesting. You do not want to miss that. We are working on that right now. Also, we have new reporting that is very, very disturbing and concerning. A memorial um, that a memorial that was set up to honor the, this, this, the slain, murdered Fort Hood soldier, Vanessa Guillen, um, was vandalized earlier this week. Um, according to LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens, they say the nation, uh, they say, quote, I would ask that we focus on reminding the community that the mural is there to bring the community together and bring awareness to sexual assault, sexual harassment, and its prevention. Quote, Our community has already been damaged by the loss of one too many soldiers. We ask that we collectively take care of the mural as we honor our service members who live in the silent combat. 
They say that if you have any information on who the suspect was, um, please. In, in, part of the, in part of this reporting by NBC News, quote, a surveillance camera video was released Friday by the League of United Latin American Citizens, the nation's oldest Latino civil rights group known as LULAC, which is calling on the public's help in identifying the man. According to NBC News affiliate KCEN, the memorial was cleaned up later Friday morning. Allegedly, the man, excuse me, reportedly, the man was kicking over candles. He can be seen in the video kicking over candles. On Wednesday of this week, Vanessa Gain would have been 21 years old. Houston ISD celebrated um, Vanessa Gain Day. They also celebrated her birthday in commemorating that very, very special occasion. We'll be right back on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. This is our TJPS special report. Once again, we're going to have more reporting on on our TJPS special report and an upcoming TJPS special report on the situation at Fort Hood. We'll be right back. All right, TJPS listeners, yesterday I said that we will have a special report on the coronavirus and ICE detention facilities this Tuesday on our YouTube channel. Actually, I'd like to correct myself here. I do not want to make any false promises. And then you go to the YouTube channel on Tuesday and you don't see it. He's like, oh, no, it's not there. Um, so we are actually going to bring that report to you. We do not know when, but we're going to bring that report to you. If it is next weekend, it will be next weekend. But we're going to bring that I, that special report on the coronavirus and ICE detention facilities and also what's going on in ICE detention facilities. Um, look for that this week or this weekend. We'll be right back with the last note. Oh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Liz and I are going to do some work around the house. Do you know any good contractors? I might. Oh, that's great. Can you check their qualifications? Uh, make sure they have great reviews and research the average price for the job. Oh, and book them on Wednesday. Actually, make it Friday. It went in the water. You can't expect your neighbors to do everything HomeAdvisor can. So for a better way to get home projects done right, just ask HomeAdvisor. Welcome back. As I had said at the top of the show, multiple senators on this, sitting on the Senate Judiciary Committee have tested positive for the coronavirus. Last night, as I watched a debate between um, South Carolina Democratic Senate candidate uh, Jamie Harrison and current incumbent Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, as I watched both of them speak last night, Republican Chairman, Republican Senate Chairman Lindsey Graham said that, yes, the confirmation hearing for Judge Amy, Con Judge Amy Coney Barrett will continue. That will proceed. It's a bit unclear on how that's going to happen. The Atlantic has just published a new article, quote, suddenly Amy Coney Barrett might have, might not have the votes. For the moment, COVID-19 diagnoses have jeopardized three votes that Republicans can't afford to lose, end quote. I'll make sure to put this article in the description of this episode that could that hearing that those the confirmation proceedings could potentially be halted. It's unclear on if Lindsey Graham will actually do that. But another astonishing and heartbreaking thing that we are seeing transpire right now is New York. And especially given what they have gone through back at the beginning of the pandemic, and especially just grappling with it through the worst of the pandemic in April, in mid-April, and in March, where they were dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, according to new reporting by CBS News and other multiple news sources, New York is looking to close some areas right now as they are announcing a potential coronavirus, as they are announcing coronavirus surges. According to CBS News, quote, New York City's mayor said Sunday that he asked the state for permission to close schools and reinstate restrictions on non-essential businesses in several neighborhoods because of, resurgence of, because of a resurgence of the coronavirus. The action, if approved, would 
mark a disheartening retreat for a city that enjoyed a summer with less spread of the virus than most parts of their uh, most parts of the country and had only recently celebrated the return of students citywide to now attend in-person classes again. Shutdowns would happen starting Wednesday in nine zip codes in the city, Mayor de Blasio said. About 100 public schools are or about 100 public schools and 200 private, private schools would have to close. Indoor dining, which just resumed a few days ago, would be suspended. Outdoor restaurant dining would be shut down in the affected neighborhoods as well. And gyms would close too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Uh, make sure to check out our website. You can go to anger.fm slash the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Our website is actually in that. It's it's like this little this little website icon. It's on that website on Anchor. Also, uh, make sure to check out our YouTube channel, the Jeremiah Patterson Show. With that said, thank you so much for listening to this episode. The vice presidential debate is this week. I look forward to that and please watch it. Thank you again. I'll see you. I'll see you Saturday.